This is WexCast, the podcast of the Wexner Center for the Arts at The Ohio State University. I'm Melissa Starker, PR and Content Manager for the Wex. This fall, Ohio State is hosting a residency by dancer, choreographer, and multimedia artist Andre M. Zachary, director of the Brooklyn-based company Renegade Performance Group. A highlight of Andre's time here in Columbus is a presentation here at the WEX of the RPG work Untamed Space, a look at 21st century African-American identity through the lens of history, specifically the formation of maroon colonies. These independent communities were established in the 17th and 18th centuries by self-liberated Africans who escaped slavery by fleeing to rural, inaccessible areas after arriving in the Americas. For this WexCast, Andre and Wex Director of Performing Arts Lane Chaplinski discuss how Andre's family history informed his pursuit of a creative career. His interest in technology as a creative tool, the ties between marooning and the contemporary idea of safe spaces, and the connections between untamed space and the cultural movement of Afrofuturism. Let's listen. Andre, you were just watching the World Cup and France won, and you told me you're a huge football fan. Uh, when did that start? Okay, so here's a funny story. In 1994, I entered middle school. In 1994, the United States hosted the World Cup. Um, and so the first day of middle school, uh, I show up and I'm wearing my bright yellow Brazil kit. You know, my excitement and euphoria. So I show up first day of school and I just remember an entire lunch table just turned and looked at me and they were just like, what are you wearing? And I was just like, a Brazil jersey. They just won the World Cup. And everyone was just like, you play soccer? And I was just like, yeah. And they were just like, ooh. And so, <laughs> that, you know, that was me. Uh, you know, this, this, uh, this black kid from the south side of Chicago, um, you know, who played soccer. Um, you know, I was in, you know, a, a dancer as well. You know, mm-hmm. my mother put me in dance. And, um, you know, I, I'm coming into, you know, starting to come into my own. And I remember then I was just like, ooh, middle school is going to be hard. <laughs> so, mm-hmm. And it was hard, but it was good. Cause, you know, it, it, it gave me a lot of uh, formative experiences, good and bad. But um, it allowed me to kind of understand how as I could be. Um, and so, you know, being a dancer uh, and then becoming an artist uh, outright, you know, in various mediums and then exploring my own work and voice through choreography and those other mediums like design and uh, film, um, visual, visual media, uh, I kind of came to it um, by putting a lot of my own narrative together from my family history and then kind of the cultural context in which I came from. Mm -hmm. So, you know, the soccer comes into play uh, because um, my mother's Haitian, my my Haitian grandfather. And so, you know, that was my connection with him, watching soccer matches on Sundays um, and getting a love for the sport. And, you know, his team, of course, was Brazil. You know, all Haitians love Brazil. But for me, I took to France after the 98 World Cup. Um, you know, I thought that team was just so incredible. And of course they beat Brazil, but that was kind of like my own stake and being like, you know, yeah, this is, this is my team. Um, and so then after that, you know, dance, I, I didn't know how much I actually really loved dance 
um, not just because of the movement, but because it was a, a place where people could connect. Um, and so, you know, I, I when I understood like what it could possibly do for me, take me around the world, allow me to meet new people, learn new languages, I knew right away that you know dance was probably that field um, because I you know I grew up doing it. But I, I had no choice really. My mom put me in it. Um, but then the more I started to advance as a professional in the field, the more I started to realize how so many, uh, how so much of it was unlocking a lot about myself and my own uh, narrative of you know growing up in the South Side of Chicago. Um, you know, being of so many different ancestries from the American South to uh, to Haiti and other parts of the diaspora. So that's where I really started to make sense of, you know, myself and then also the, the world around me. Did you feel a pressure representing those different parts of yourselves uh, on, on stage, like uh, exploring those on stage in front of an audience, or is that something you enjoy? It's something I actually enjoy. Uh, because I think I put more of the pressure on myself um, sometimes to explore and open up the nuances. Um, and I think I sometimes get lost uh, in my own head <laughs> as an artist, but uh, I think one of the challenges for me is, is being able to explore to allow the movement or the work um, or you know whatever is being uh, created on in the space or during the performance to kind of read and that's sometimes that's a challenge for me um, as far as like representing all of those narratives um, I feel like they come out in the various places on the stage um, I guess in relationship to uh, the work that will be here at Wexner Center, Untamed Space, you know, you can see or you can hear and feel really the the pulsation of house music, um, and not in its like actual or derivative form, but in like, like this under undercurrent that really, for me, represented what it meant to be, uh, you know, a teenager in Chicago during the '90s, um, and and what house music was and still is, and how the word house music. It, it represents really this safe space and how it really was a safe space um, and how I can, you know, place that into the work um, as a segment for uh, for people to say, wow, you took me back with that song, you know, and not in its like literal form, but like, oh my God, yeah, I heard that. And then my mind went back to this place and to this place. And it was just like, yeah, that's, that's how I, I kind of, I guess, like to put these uh, pieces of the puzzle together in a work. Mm -hmm. um, and I think I, I don't try and force that out of me, if that makes sense. Mm -hmm. I, I really allow it. I try and build a framework in which to explore some material, whether it's movement, task, um, relationship with sound or, or visual, in, uh, in context of whatever um, that narrative needs to be at that moment. Mm -hmm. So I, I kind of don't, I, yeah, I don't want to like, force it. Um, and say like now this is this part of me but mm -hmm. I really try and allow it to come out naturally that idea of a safe space uh, in some of the project 
uh, description language, it refers to the idea of marooning. Mm -hmm. How long has that idea of seeking out a safe space or creating that for yourself been with you as an artist? When did that when did that um, motivation come about to to pursue a safe space that way on stage? You know, honestly, uh, thinking back on it, um, it was after the. Uh, the 2010 earthquake in Haiti. Um, I was living in Belgium at the time, and you know we we saw the news, and immediately you know, for my grandfather was in Haiti at the time in Pechamble, uh, and we didn't hear from him for about eight or nine days, and it's this feeling of helplessness, terror, but then at this at, at the deepest core level, there was a sense of acceptance that if whatever happened we knew you know our compare he was in his homeland and that would you know um and that was where you know in the sense that that if joining the ancestors there was the divine will that you know so be it but um you know thankfully he was alive um and, and was well uh, but it was coming back to the u.s um uh after that period of living living abroad um and Knowing that um, the experiences I had had living overseas um, gave me a new sense of self um, in coming back to the United States um, and feeling immediately the pressures of the oppression really that, that exists here um, in a different way than in Europe, but definitely coming back to the U.S., I felt more of a sense of danger, um, and then relating it to these, uh, you know, these various parts of myself. Um, it was something where I was like, "Well, how can I really speak to, you know, how I feel as a as a young black male and others feel?" But then, in the sense of the diaspora, like, okay, well, now you know, an entire country is having to rebuild itself, or a region of the country, uh, really. Um, and how, how does their narrative actually need to be reflected in the now um, and not in, I guess, the, the Americanized idea of Haiti or other locations in the world, but like actually the con a contemporary context of like, no, these are the conversations that are being, being had, um, not a postcard image of what they think it is, um, in, in spite of whatever was happening, the misery, the poverty, or uh, in spite of the police brutality or um, uh, the injustice, but in the sense that, no, there, there are actually mechanisms and practices that we are doing and actually have continuously done uh, to make sure that safe spaces are created. Mm -hmm. And so that started to really uh, open my mind to understand, like, well, I've always wanted to uh, open up uh, my company, Renegade Performance Group, beyond just being a, a place for choreography. So then I, that's when I started to understand, okay, sound design is really going to have to be a major part. Um, media and, and film and visual context are really going to have to play like a really visceral role in understanding uh, you know, what has been created. And so that started to like, and then of course I was you know, very much into technology. And, um, and so that started to really lead me down uh, I guess the path of, I guess what we know now and, and coming to terms with, um, was placing my work in, in Afrofuturism, 
Mm-hmm. Um, and the more I got uh, into unpacking my choreography and my work under this realm of Afrofuturism, the more I did have to go back, um, understand historical lineage, context narrative, um, frameworks. Uh, but then I started to see and identify futuring practices within myself, uh, within other communities, and how that started to make sense uh, for this idea of creating a safe space, even when people didn't think that it was happening. But it was just like, no, these, these various pockets are doing it. Um, almost really invisible gestures. <laughs> and, in like, uh, and, and that relates to ballooning, mm-hmm. um, which was that actual escaping to create a space of liberation, even if it was surrounded by oppression. You bring up uh, Afrofuturism. What is? How would you describe that to somebody on an airplane right now? <laughs> uh, yeah, I think that's probably the question. That is, that if anyone can uh, answer that question within three words, I think you know they definitely deserve you know like a, a Nobel Prize in <laughs> literature or something. For me, Afrofuturism is a reimagining, reconsidering, and reclaiming of blackness in the context, especially of the Western diaspora, and allowing it to enter spaces and influence them and shape them in ways that we haven't imagined before, um, while being informed by practices that were done within our own historical, cultural, or even ancestral narrative. So, you know, that means Afrofuturism is, as uh, one of my good uh, friends and mentors, um, uh, Jan Tande, uh, born with the hunter, as they said, Afrofuturism is a movement, it's not merely an aesthetic. It's not a veneer that, you know, that you put on, you know, a cool outfit and, you know, some, um, you know, some Jordy LaForge glasses, right? you know, uh, next generation Star Trek, and you're just like, yeah, you know, I'm this, you know, cool, cool black futurist, you know, and then bring up some George Clinton. It, it, it's really, it's not just that, it, it really is uh, a constituting the various forms in which blackness has existed in the, this diaspora and saying, okay, this is how this space is connected. This is how this space here in Mississippi was connected to Salvador and Bright and Brazil. And this is why this link can happen through a digital context as well. And what happens when they meet? That, and I think that's the that's the futuring part. You know, it's saying, okay, well, yeah, we have this rich, you know, cultural legacy in, in New Orleans. Okay, now what happens when it meets? Uh, what's going on in, uh, you know, Santiago de Cuba. That's, and I think that's the futuring moment that, I, for, I, for me, in the sense of how it relates to technologies and using the technologies as a real tool and channel and then saying, okay, these energies meet there and then it creates this other portal that takes it somewhere that we, that we really don't know what will happen. And I think that's the beauty of it. We were talking yesterday about technology as power, mm-hmm. and I guess can you and you've talked about you know 
teaching workshops about taking even basic technology and having it help frame a narrative. Can you talk about your, your interests and, uh, in technology and, and how you're trying to use it? Technology um, definitely is power, and it's about empowering others to use it as a tool to archive, uh, preserve, and inform not just you know what you're doing now and not just what came before, but to, to use really as, as, an, as an, an encyclopedia for a coming generation. Um, and I, I think if we really think of it like that in the sense that you know those encyclopedia Britannicas that everybody used to have, that was that, you know that was a technology, albeit by the time we, you know we had it in like, what, the late '80s. If we think about it in the terms of like Gutenberg's printing press, yeah. So you know now this is a 900-year-old technology in the sense of, of that form of archiving. You know even older once we think of like manuscripting and you know going back to hieroglyphs, uh, but. We, that's, that is for me how I look at technology. It's just, it's just a reforming and a reframing of that. Um, and then it can be embodied. You know, if, if we really understand, one of uh, my um, now good friends, uh, a former um, colleague of mine, Professor Wesley Taylor um, at VCU, he had this uh, amazing practice in his course he called Stupid Technology. And his assignment to his students was, okay, before it can happen in an analog object of material, how can it happen in the body? How can it be realized in the body first? And then can we translate that into building an instrument that then replicates that sense of, of communication and dialogue? Hmm. And, I th- and, and, you know, Wesley you know, is a media designer and uh, amazing artist uh, in, in his own right. And he's not a dancer at all. And when he said that, I was like, oh my God, you know, that, that is just brilliant. Because that is exactly what Afrofuturism is. And that is exactly what that sense of relationship to the body and technology really can be in, in a metaphysical sense. Um, and, I, and I think that, that that is where that sense of incorporating, understanding blackness and African... And, Africanized, reimagined principles here in relationship to 21st century uses of technology and instrumentation as, as, you, as connectors. Because as, as you just said, it's a tool. And it's something, and how it's used is how within corporeal human relationships, those values which we share will then translate to actually how we use these technological instruments in front of us, either for good or for bad, or hopefully this sense of you know, regeneration and possibility. That's great. Um, yesterday you said this thing that stayed with me about you've arrived at a place as a choreographer where, and I, I took it as, as a, this arrival as sort of a cracking open um, after years of study of lots of different disciplines and being a dancer, and, mm-hmm. but now you're at a place. How would you describe that place? What is it that are your concerns or, or what, what excites you about this place where you are right now? Um, what, what I'm concerned with now um, uh, is dimensionality. And I'm really interested in this thing of how can um, 
dimensionality become a, a space to break down hierarchy. Um, and I think one of the tools for that and a major uh, form of corporeal technology is improvisation. Um, I want, especially in the context of blackness and performance, I, I would love to see a reclaiming of improvisation through not just black bodies, and not, not the literal representation, but of how it has been done through practices of um, dance, sound, uh, visual design uh, in this diaspora. Um, and again, I, and I, I'm very specific in saying in this diaspora because in relationship to the African continent, Blackness really was a connotative realm which was prescribed for the West, for the Americas, to really situate certain bodies in that container mm -hmm. uh, for litigation, economic, all of that in relationship to the transatlantic slave trade and to where we are right now. So that, so that really is a very different thing in relationship to the continent of Africa where then there's this uh, the space of colonization and post-colonial and post-post. Uh, so that, that for me is very important for those who listen and understand. And so what I'm, again, in reformulating to that, we see that then, I guess most immediately, yeah, I grew up in hip-hop culture. And so when we look at the veneer of hip-hop culture, you know, we just remember MTV, yo, MTV raps and, you know, BT, but like at the real root of it, I mean, which is in a lot of my works as well, these are some major futuring practices. I mean, the four elements that made up hip-hop, you know, that, that those are some of the most Africanized things ever. I mean, you have, you know, this DJ, which, again, the sound provider. Then you have this circle, this cipher, where the movement is happening. That's just a recontextualization of the ring shout and then other various forms of, of ancestral practices throughout the Americas. Then all of a sudden you have this person, this high person with, with a mic, and you know, uh, embodied this recontextualization of the griot, which then becomes the MC, i.e. the rapper. Then you have the scribers, those who actually then do these new hieroglyphs on the train. So I mean, like that, 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 I mean that's how deep hip hop really is. And, and it's informed so much of my own work and my own practice. But all of that at the time was improvisation. That was, I mean, that was improvisation and, you know, um, and if we're going to use the word repurposing <laughs> in, its realist, in its most amazing form. Um, and, you know, and then, so then I related to then how improvisation has kind of been garnered into the avant-garde, meaning especially the white box space, i.e. the white space. And so we look at a John Cage as a master improviser. And, and I said, well, in, and so then in learning more and reading about Cage and, you know, um, David Tudor and others, you know, in that realm, it's like, well, okay, but wait a second now. There's, there's something interesting um, in that antithesis that there was uh, acknowledgement of the other, meaning that, of course, they knew <laughs> Dizzy Gillespie and you know Charlie Bird Park and Ella Fitzgerald at the time <laughs> were also doing a thing, 
But improvisation was a major component of the actual form of jazz and then into R&B and blues and, and then what have you, into where we are now, into, into hip-hop um, and even other forms, again, through the diaspora. And so for me, I was very... And then this thing about Cage, uh, we were talking yesterday... Um, you know, Cage was kind of anti-recording, but in this way of like almost the recording became an art in itself. For me, I extended it, and he was and had his interesting relationships also with records, and and and, um, and so for me, I said, well, wait a second, hip hop was even a little bit more because to me, they almost outcaged Cage in the sense that when you had a Grandmaster Flash scratching, he wasn't just he literally was using. The, the material of the record itself as instrumentation against the needle. And I'm like, well, man, he just kind of outcaged Cage in wow. the sense that Cage was like, oh, I hate records. He was like, okay, cool. The record won't even have anything on it, and I'm going to make it instrument itself mm-hmm. with what you hate. I mean, that's just brilliant. You know what I mean? And so, again, but that's that was improvisation. And it's pure, I mean, that, that's, that's, that's investigation. That's experimentation. And you know, like they didn't have any lights, they didn't have any funding. I mean, what did they have but some energy, you know, and, and a whole lot of drive. And so that for me is why now I'm saying, okay, look at look at that, how it has been done, how we continuously do. And so I guess for me, I think the long answer, yeah, improvisation is is something that I really would like to see reconstituted through this channel or lens of blackness mm-hmm. and really honoring those who really did it before and saying, okay, how much further can it go? How much, how many layers can we peel back within the thing mm-hmm. and get to these places um, that that really can like create these really visceral experiences? So you give really specific examples, beautiful examples, um, you know, of technique and hip hop. So when we when we take that idea and we put it on dance. And we bring up that notion of improvisation. Some people can just think of uh, wiggly bodies, you know. <laughs> right. What uh, what would you tell the layperson about ways that you get into or frame improvisation or think about it or exercises or points of departure technique? Well, it's not necessarily that improvisation has rules, but improvisation definitely has context. Um, so just one of the major elements of it for me is the practice of call and response Um, even if it's a singular body in the room that there's a way in which your body especially in in relationship to because ancestral acknowledgement is, is a part of blackness there's an understanding okay everything that I that constitutes myself, my flesh, my energy, my blood, was given through these various elements, community, family, brother, sister, girlfriend, boyfriend, whomever. And you call on them when you're in the space. You honor them. You honor that time, you know, your, your uncle gave you, you know, that first dap. And you remember that. And there's a way in which that your body recalls that blood memory, those muscle memories. And you allow that to inform, okay, well, what does that mean now? 
what did that mean? You know, when my aunt Rachel looked at me and she said, "Don't you run down my steps?" And you and you slow. Oh yeah, I, I can't run down my steps like that. You know, and so that acknowledgement allows you to be informed in the space in a very, very, very real way. Um, and I, I think that that most basic element, that call and response, that gesture, is is very powerful. And so then once you start to put other bodies in that place with you, there then becomes this negotiation, this consideration, this acceptance, this drive, this surrender to all of these different voices and spaces around you. Um, you allow it to be informed from the outside in and then sometimes from the inside out. Um, I guess one of the most powerful examples I could say uh, of liberated spaces that we saw in, the, in let's say, the United States was that period of soul train um, in the mid-60s through the late 70s. You know, you, you saw these, and, and for me, uh, you know, when we're speaking about contemporary work and, and the avant-garde, and we speak of the gays, and then we're speaking about the white gays, and, and kind of the camera as an extension of that, well, there's something for me of doing what you do in the midst of it, whether you acknowledge the gaze or not. But it's just like, you know what, we got to do this thing. And I think Soul Train was one of those amazing spaces if you can you know, look, on the, the, look on YouTube and see the old clips. I, I love it when James Brown is on there. Because James Brown and the relationship to that, those bodies dancing, and the JBs, the band, I mean, that... That's, it's beyond, you know, man, that's, I mean, sometimes you can just like well up inside because you see, that's the, you know, the height of the civil rights movement, black power, mm -hmm. but you see this extension of black love, unity, you know, you're waiting for James to scream on that mic, he does that split, and you just see these bodies just doing the thing in a way that's just so beautiful, and whether the camera was there or not, they were going to find a way to make sure that they could get together and jam out and, and rock down and, you know, and soul power with James. And I think that that's a great example of even in the midst of everything um, in kind of relationship to contemporary work now, um, one of Bamuthi Joseph's works, you know, Black Joy in the Hour of Chaos. Those are those examples, again, of how it it formed, it really just did what it needed to do. And then when it was need, when it needs to, to end, you found a way for it to end. Mm -hmm. um, and, and so I think that that for me is, it is important to relate that even to the contemporary proscenium stage and how these, because that's, that's still framing. You know, that it's the framing through this visual medium, the, the TV, but then when we come to the, the theater space, the performance space, the white box space, there is still this framing of it. And so then how does that, that energy then transform and relate then to this, contempt, this other new contemporary space? Mm -hmm. And then what is it doing here in relationship and time and, and context? And, and so, um, yeah, I, I think that gives people a pretty good entry point to see. Like, it's not just bodies flopping around. Mm -hmm. Like, no, no, there's, there's a communication and a dialogue that's happening, you know, beyond words. Mm -hmm. that can really just ground the space, elevate it, break it apart. You know, the roof is on fire. You know what I mean? Like, all, all of that, mm -hmm. which then 
you know, gives what it gives improvisation to me this power of just like breaking something down and being like, all right, we're all here, let's go. So then another layer in the work, at least that we'll be seeing here, but I have a feeling in, in much of your work is is the video aspect of it. Mm-hmm. So you just described very articulately the the improvisation and how you approach that and how it frames the movement. And then there's this when you immersive video. Mm-hmm. Can, can you now talk to us about what that does for you and how you go about creating it? Yeah. Um, the so in Untamed Space, um, there are uh, four sections. Um, for me, the video and the visuals have to move beyond, are always beyond aesthetic and veneer. And they are a functioning part of the work to ground it in, some, in something, in place uh, and, and time. And so within the first video, what I do is I take um, Haitian Veves, and I re and I redesign them. Haitian Veves. So the Haitian Veves are visual representations of the loa, and the loa are the are are kind of the the spiritual pantheon of Wudun, um, and then they relate to uh, you know Cuban and Cuba, Santeria and Kumi, um, and uh, Brazil Candomblé, uh, and the Orishas, if you will, which are then an extension of. Uh, the, the Yoruba tradition is in West Africa. And then the Veves themselves in Haiti, because again, in this, uh, in the West, you had this mix. So it wasn't just, you know, the Yoruba, you had the, the Igbo, and then also Dahomeyan and uh, those and people from Benin. Um, and then also Islam. You know, several Africans that were brought to the West were, pra- you know, practitioners of Islam. And so all that mix then created again, these new forms of imagery, which then became the veve. So you have, you know, veve for various uh, loa, you know, Ezudi Danto, Ezudi Frida, La Serene, Ezudi Ogu, Ogu, Elegba, Baron Sambi, Papagede, all of these. And so each one represents these various loa. And so for me, I was looking, I'm looking at Ezu um, Danto uh, and Elegba or Elegwa, and the sense of passage over the ocean, and then the opener of space at or excuse me, not opener, but really just at being it's this place of crossroads. And what does that look like in this vortex of time? Um, then I wanted to create. Then in the Mississippi section. Um, I really wanted to create this idea of um, the star, this, this huge sky. I remember going to Mississippi and just, you know, because it, it, there's no, in certain parts, yeah, there's no streetlights, and then all of a sudden it's just stars. You just look up and you're just like, my God. And then you can look down and just, you know, just see acres of, of cotton fields, you know, just long in the Mississippi Delta, uh, specifically where uh, my family is from. And I wanted to just recreate that. I'm just like, wow. And then so I went, I basically layered then kind of like this endless cosmos on kind of like two levels. And so like you see this reflection of of night sky and then this surface of cotton kind of continuously transforming and just ebbing and flowing. Um, And so yeah, that that for me is just kind of how I like to uh, uh, place the visuals. Um, 
it was in this piece, it was a little bit hard for me to create an interactive landscape. And one of my other pieces called the Inscription Project, which looks at graffiti as a tenant of Afrofuturism, there is an actual part where the performers, uh, I, I was able to uh, rig and um, program a Wiimote to create virtual graffiti on the, the projection surface, where I had them, I said, okay, if you could pick an image or something that you would want to tag or like put your, your stamp on, you know, and just be like, ah, you know, I hate this, that's, you know, some oppressive form, what would it be? And so they selected it and they brought it to me and I put it on, uh, mapped it on the projection surface and then they improved with the can for a minute and they created their own tag over it. And so that's, again, this, you know, reconstituting how technology really becomes this form that, you know, you know, you know definitely through work and then relating it to movement, um, space, and, you know, the context of, of what's happening. So um, that for me is how I really, you know, wanted to go through making uh, uh, design and, and visual and media work a part of the actual dance and performance space. Was that part of what was appealing to the residency here at OSU through the dance department that, in fact, you'll be working in the Advanced Center for, or it's ACAT, I don't even know what it stands for. The Advanced Center for um, uh, Computer and Artistic Design, I believe. Advanced Computing Center for Art and Design, how's that? That's what it is, all right. Right, okay. But you're gonna be making a piece. I will, I'll be in residency uh, for the fall uh, 2018 semester uh, at the OSU Department of Dance. Um, I, I came through invitation through uh, the program director, Susan Hadley, and so I'll be working with uh, uh, Nora Zanega Shaw, um, creating a, a new work for their 50th anniversary. Um, and I mean, in the long history, you know, that Ohio State has had in that relationship of movement and uh, technology and design. Um, you know, I've been knowing about Nora's work, especially with the things she had done with William Forsyth um, and, and how that really kind of like advanced the threshold of how we really considered movement as uh, as moving beyond a language of you know visceral and in real time, and then pushing it into this virtual and digital space where it could be reimagined even more. And so that for me is just, you know is very important. Um, and so yeah, I mean, super excited to be doing that. Um, you know, really eager to get in the space and and get with the students and see what possibilities again are unlocked. Mm. Even more about the residency, I'm curious. Just to, we were talking about this point of your career. As a as a U.S. based movement artist, mm -hmm. uh, what how do you approach the residency? Does it does it feel like uh, time to go deeper into your practice, or does it feel like uh, yet one more thing you have to do uh, mm -hmm. across a career that, that pulls your focus? How do you approach it? Um, no, it's definitely to the first answer to deepen uh, practice, um, and I think part of that deepening of practice also. It's, it's really about connecting um, also into community. Um, and so that then is kind of in the relationship that we'll be doing with the, the King Arts Complex here in um, Columbus. And so, you know, and, and hopefully in getting to work and just really listening to community and the, the lineage and the legacy of the African-American community in Columbus, I'm eager to learn that. Um, and, you know, for me, that's a, a practice in which you know, I can look at um, kind of the pioneer, if you will, um, a leader in, uh, you know, Jaule, Willa Jozala, urban bushwoman, and 
their summer leadership institute and the work in which they have really, really just understood how community is an engine which creates this relationship, this uh, you know dual directional relationship of feeding and informing from their side to the other, um, and how it allowed their work to really uh, not only just speak for itself, but to also allow the community to figure out ways to speak for itself. Um, and whatever community that they have decided to enter or has been, they've been invited to enter, I, I, should, I should say. And so I think for me that's something that's uh, informative as an artist. It's humbling because it, it also, I mean, how can I match that work, you know, that they've done? You know what I mean? But this is also in the, that sense of what, on our, what we were speaking about yesterday again with technology. Well, okay, cool. I love technology. I love working with it in these amazing and creative ways. If that's a way that I can then go in and say, okay, there's history in this community, whether people um, understand it or not, but there's a way to almost unlock that, especially for young people, and say, okay, how do you engage your elders in a way that for both of you, it creates something informative? Okay, this is how you use a DSLR. These are the different functions that you can do in editing to make the story pop, you know what I mean? This is how you sound design, you know, you get a good microphone. This is, you know, how an audio engineer works. Talk to your, you know, your great aunt. Talk to this, this cousin. How did they get here? What actually do they remember about Columbus, you know, from 40 years ago, 50 years ago, 60 years ago? You know, you would be surprised. And those narratives actually then really give, from, from me, can give an individual in the community a sense of purpose and and understanding, okay, wait a minute, there's something here. And then, to me, that continues to build and create this really knowledge bank, if you will. And that's something that I, I feel, if that can happen, you know, through this relationship with King Center and allowing spaces and opportunities to, for people in the community to do that, I'm, I'm all for that. Um, and hopefully that can be, um, um, you know, something that can be uh, left after you know the presidency is finished at the end of this year, and, and that can continue in their own way, you know, because I'm not here to define it. It's just like this is what I like to do, and these are the possibilities. If you if it didn't come across your mind, thank you. You're welcome. <laughs> Thanks for listening to Wexcast. Renegade Performance Group's Untamed Space will be performed in the Wexner Center Performance Space September 27th through 30th. For tickets and more information about this and other Wexner Center programming, go to wexarts.org.